0: So again, we are going to be in uh, Luke chapter 1 verses 57 through 80 as we continue in our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. And the key truth that we're going to discover this morning is this, God saves us by his mercy so that we can serve him without fear all our days. God saves us by his mercy so that we can serve him without fear all our days. So let's see that now in Luke chapter 1 verses 57 Well, as we approach this text this morning, a question we should consider as we jump in is this, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of in life? I don't mean just small, silly fears, but I mean those fears that when you awake at 3 a.m. and you feel anxious, that's the first thing that comes to your mind. The fears that you have as you think about the future for yourselves or your children, as you think about life as a Christian in this world, what are you afraid of? And you have to face this question head-on, and it's very important because our fears drive us. Often in life, some of our most passionate and devoted efforts are driven by fear. And take note the passive verb there. We are driven by fear. Fear drives us. It hijacks our hearts, and it makes us reactive. When you are afraid, it is very uh, consuming. It consumes your vision. It clouds everything you see. So for instance, if you're afraid of an ideology of any kind, ruining the country or ruining the church or ruining both all in one fell swoop, you will hear its cackle and you will see its shadow around every corner. It consumes you. If you are afraid of losing something, whether a possession or a relationship or the faith of someone you care about um, or the potential of that faith, then you will do everything you can. You will be consumed by your vain efforts to control everything around you to keep that possibility from happening because you're so afraid. And so fear often drives our politics, it drives our marketing and our purchases, it drives our parenting, it drives our friendships, it drives even our discipleship. And when fear drives us, it becomes very difficult to walk by faith in Christ. As we said, fear is reactive. You're always reacting to what you're afraid of, but walking by faith is proactive It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Faith, as the scriptures say, hopes for things unseen, and it walks in the light of that hope. That is a proactive posture. Fear, however, fixates on things seen, and it runs from things that might be. So fear and faith are very much opposed. They change the way we live in this world. And so one of the fundamental ways the Holy Spirit grows us as disciples throughout our lives is he helps to replace our fears of the world and our fears in the world with the fear of the Lord, which is faith. When you have the fear of the Lord, that means that God and his character and his promises, they are central in your life. You live for his glory, not for your own agenda. You live confident that he is bigger than any of the shadows and darkness you may face in this life. And so the fear of the Lord ought to be center in our lives as Christians. And when we think of the Spirit replacing our fears in this world with the fear of the Lord, we ought to be very clear about how that happens. This doesn't mean that the Spirit comes along and uses God's Word to say, hey, you know, all those things you're scared of, just dismiss that, let's deflate those fears. There's really nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be scared about the horrors of sin and the terrors of evil in this world. Deflating what we're afraid of is a very common way to face our fears. It's the way of Stoicism. It's the way of Buddhism and other such philosophies and religions. And in that mindset, rather than saying, um, you know, let's, let's face this head on, it just says, look, there's no reason to be scared of the dark. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You don't need to be afraid of that. You can't control things. Just carry on. You can't change it, so just deflate your fears. But Scripture maps out a much better path, a much more fruitful path. The way God handles your fears is not by dismissing them or by deflating them, but by overcoming them through the light of His Son, Jesus Christ. Rather than saying to us, there's no reason to be scared of the dark. You know, just mature, just see through it. God comes to us in Jesus and He lights everything up with His grace and His mercy in Christ. He sends Jesus, who is the light of the world, that enters the darkness and is not overcome by it, but overcomes it instead. And what that means then, as we'll see in this text this morning, is that we get to bring all of our fears, whether they seem small and petty to us and we're embarrassed that we're afraid of those things, or they're big and consuming, we can bring them all into God's light in Christ. And we can see that they too are overwhelmed by the light of Jesus. And so we can walk in the face of darkness and the shadow of death because we have rest in God's mercy. And that, as we'll see that Zechariah prophesies, is why we can serve God without fear all our days. So let's get into that this morning. We're going to start looking at verses 57 through 66 and see first the birth of John. Now, as we look at that, uh, remember, Luke has done a very good job at keeping the timeline clear. Mary had come to visit Elizabeth six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John. She stayed for about three months, and so now it is time for Elizabeth to give birth to John the Baptist. And just like God promised, she gives birth to a son. Now, it's worth pausing here just to ponder this. Do remember that in this day and age, uh, in her time, they did not have ultrasounds. They didn't have genetic tests. So we know, we look back, we're like, yeah, of course she had a son. But do remember, she didn't know she was going to have a son, but by the word of God in which she had placed her faith. It wasn't until she held her baby boy, John, in her arms that she saw for herself that the child in her womb really was a boy. So she'd been walking by faith these nine months, trusting that the child she carried miraculously really was a boy. It's just fascinating. It's something I think we overlook because of the technology we enjoy today when we have pregnancies of our own. We, we know very early on the sex of the child. And so her faith uh, bears out. God's promise is true. She gives birth to a son. And just as Gabriel had promised to Zechariah back in verse 14 of chapter 1, many come to rejoice at John's birth. Elizabeth's neighbors and, they, and her relatives, they hear about God's mercy to her and they gather to rejoice with her. They recognize that God has done something remarkable here. The barren woman, the woman born a child, and that meant the pattern of God's working in the Old Testament, of him coming to those where it seemed that it would be impossible for a child to be born, that pattern continued here. God was at work. And just like Elizabeth rejoiced at God's work in Mary's life, as you saw last week, so now others rejoice at God's work in her life. There is much to celebrate as God is at work in the life of his people. And so then Luke notes that on the eighth day, verse 59, they all gather again um, to to circumcise John. This was very important in the life of Israel. Um, From Genesis 17, 12, when God instructed Abraham to circumcise on the eighth day every male child in his household, whether his own child or uh, one of his servants and their children, this was the standard practice in Israel. It was the covenant sign being put on the next generation. Leviticus 12.3 codified that practice for all of Israel. And so as faithful Israelites, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they are diligent to apply the covenant sign to their son on the eighth day. And this was a joyous occasion. It was a testimony to God's faithfulness in their family and in the broader nation of Israel. So their neighbors gather again. And it was also, Luke explains, time to name the child. And so as Elizabeth's relatives and her neighbors gather together, they assume that Elizabeth and Zechariah will name the child Zechariah. That's what you did in those days. You would often name the firstborn after the father or perhaps the grandfather. It was a way to honor the family. It was also not just, you know, a stodgy tradition. It was a way to bear witness to God's faithfulness from one generation to the next. It showed the continuity of his promises flowing down through the ages. And so, even if you didn't do that, you would at least draw from the pool of family names. And so they would have said, you know, when, it, when Luke says they would have called him Zechariah, that means they were probably already referring to him as little Zechariah. But Elizabeth says, no, whoa, hold on. His name shall be John. And this confuses everyone around her because, as they point out, no one in her family called that name. And so again, in their minds, they're thinking, well, Elizabeth, you know, your, your husband is struck mute. Are you trying to pull a fast one? Like, are you dishonoring your family? Um, are you just not caring about God's goodness to you down through the ages? Why are you breaking custom here? And so they ask Zechariah. They think, surely he's going to set things right here. He'll do things the way they ought to be done. And the fact that they they make motions to him indicates that he had not only been struck mute, but he had been struck deaf this whole time. The word that the Bible uses and that Luke uses can mean both mute and deaf. And so they signal, they get Zechariah's attention. He signals for a writing tablet. That was just a piece of wood that had wax on it that he could write on. This is probably how he communicated with his wife, and with anyone who needed to talk to him for about nine or ten months now. And so they give him the tablet, and they're waiting, and they're probably thinking, yeah, okay, here we go. He's going to write, his name is Zechariah. But instead, notice what Zechariah writes. His name is, not will be, not shall be called. His name is John. It's not a question for Zechariah. Gabriel, as a messenger from the, the Lord our God, had already told him, you will call this child's name John. And so for John, it's a settled matter. The decision was made by God. The child's name is John. And having faithfully obeyed God's command in naming his son, Zechariah's tongue is now loosed. And he breaks forth in praise and he blesses God. And everyone around him and Elizabeth and and baby John wonders at what just happened. This is abnormal. This is remarkable. And they're not wondering now because Zechariah and Elizabeth were trying to be trendy or unique in naming their son John, but they're wondering because God is on the move very clearly in this little family of three. And that is why fear falls on the people. Not the fear of of anxiety, but the fear of the Lord. They realize God is in our midst. He is doing something mighty. And we are not quite sure what he's doing yet, but we know he is at work and we know he is here. And they're in all of that. And so they store these things up in their hearts, Luke says. And what that means is they take them very seriously. If you store something up in your heart, it means you remember it. You know, Think about how little we store up in our hearts these days. We're so used to, if I need information, I pull out my phone and I search for it. I don't have to remember it in my mind, and I certainly don't have to store it in my heart where I ponder it and I meditate on it um, in my quiet times and my still times. But in storing these things up, they're indicating that this mattered to them. They realized this is important and we need to stand our watch and see what else will God do. What will this child be that he has brought in such a miraculous and unique way? For they can tell the hand of the Lord is with him, which means God had singled John out in a unique way for his purposes. Now, as we reflect on all of that, it is worth considering how as all of this is unfolding, the person who's changed the most is Zechariah. Listen to the way Daryl Bach um, describes Zechariah's growth in faith in his commentary on Luke's gospel. He says this, Zechariah shows that even the faith of pious people can pause and then develop added depth. It is important that the example is a man whose piety was praised at the start, back in verse 6. Now, Zechariah has assurance about God's promises. Zechariah also now responds in obedience, obedience that Mary gave without hesitation. Faith for some comes slowly, and for others more naturally. But in the end, the call is to emulate these saints with their notes of joy, expectation, and belief. And so what we see as we reflect on the changes God produced in Zechariah's life is that his severe mercy to Zechariah, severe mercy meaning it was intense, it was almost 10 months of silence and muteness and deafness, that act of God was for Zechariah's good in his growth in faith. God pruned this man who really had been faithful and pious his whole life, and yet God grew him further. He took him to levels of faith that Zechariah never imagined for himself by all that he had experienced in these many months. And so Zechariah went from disbelieving an angel's message given to him face to face to now withstanding the soft pressure. All of his family and his friends are encouraging him, just stick with tradition, It would have been much easier to give in to that kind of soft pressure when everyone who knows you is saying, just do this. This is what we always do. But he stands firm now. He has been changed. He has grown in his faith, and he obeys God's word. And so as as we reflect on this, it ought to encourage us, because as we've looked at Zechariah and Mary and looked at the ways Luke compares and contrasts them, you may feel way more like Zechariah than you do Mary, and that probably bothers you. But don't be bothered. Be assured. Be assured. Because even if, like Zechariah, you feel very quick to doubt and very slow to obey, remember, as Bach pointed out in his, in his comments on this text, God calls all of us, his people, to grow in faith and joy. He is faithful to use his means of grace. The things that are happening right now as his word is preached and as we will come to his table, he does use this to change you over time. Don't worry about how fast or slowly it happens. Trust that the Lord is at work in your life. Zechariah's example proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is never too late for God's mercy to transform you and deepen your faith. The things that you feel like are just encrusted barnacles on your life, things that's like, this is never gonna change. It's never gonna change. There's no more growth for me, God, to change you. You will not become perfect in this life, but you can grow and you can bear fruit and you can have new levels of faith that you thought were impossible, not because you're awesome, but because God is. Now, as we remember that, you know, we're really just getting started at seeing the change in Zechariah's life because as we turn back to the text and look at verses 67 through 80, we see the prophecy of Zechariah. This is known sometimes as the Benedictus because of the Latin word in the translation. That's how it grew up in tradition. So if you know by that title, that's where it comes from. But Luke said in verse 64, Zechariah's lips are loosed and immediately he blesses God. And now we get to listen into his praise. We get to hear this prophecy that he proclaims as he's filled by the Holy Spirit. And as we look at it, we'll we'll look at three main things that Zechariah says about God's mercy. One, we're going to look at the way he, he shows that God's covenant promises are the context for his mercy for his people. God promises by his covenants to show us mercy. Two, we'll look at how he talks about John's ministry in preparing the way for God's mercy. And three, look at the arrival of God's mercy in Christ. So covenants of mercy... Preparation for mercy, and the arrival of mercy in Christ. Those are the three main things to pull out of this very rich uh, prophecy that is, is full of echoes from the Old Testament. So first, as we look at it, just like Mary did in her song, in verses 68 through 75, Zechariah recognizes the fact that God ties his mercy to his covenants. In verses 68 through 71, he focuses especially on the Davidic covenant. That, again, is 2 Samuel 7. When God comes to David and he says, I will make of you a house, that is a dynasty, a a line of kings, and there will come one who will sit on your throne forever. His reign will not end. That's the Davidic covenant. And then in verses 72 through 75, Zechariah focuses on the Abrahamic covenant, that earlier covenant, when God comes to Abraham and he says, I will make of you a people that will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And I will give you a place to be my people, to worship me all your days. And so, as Zechariah weaves these covenants together and he looks at how they're related in these several verses, one of the things that he highlights that's kind of unique and doesn't get highlighted as much when we think about these covenants is deliverance from enemies. Notice where he says that in verse 71, as he's talking about the Davidic covenant, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Then he talks about God's mercy coming because of the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse 74, again, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. As we think about this, we may wonder, what are we going to make of the fact that that he talks so much about God delivering his people from their enemies. For example, is this an instance of an Israelite hoping for a political messiah to come and beat up the Romans instead of rescuing them from their own sin? Many in Jesus' day, as you read into the Gospels, they made that mistake. They thought Jesus would come just to give them political freedom instead of redemption from their sins. But that's actually not what Zechariah is doing. We'll we'll know that for certain as we continue. He does not see tension between deliverance from God, the enemies of God's people, and forgiveness from sins. He sees those as fitting together. And so as we consider this text and, and God's covenants of mercy and the way he delivers us from our enemies, we have to avoid two problems. On the one hand, we have to be careful that we don't immediately politicize these covenant promises. What I mean by that is you immediately politicize them when you think that a kingdom of this world, a kingdom of this age, a politician today is going to be the instrument that delivers us from our enemies, ultimately. Many in Jesus' day were expecting that. There were uprisings of the Jews against the Romans where they were looking for messianic figures to be strong enough to strong-arm the Roman Empire and to let them go. But that's not the way that this works. The only leader who can truly rescue us from our enemies is jesus and he's on his throne and he will come back and so until that day if we go and we yoke ourselves to any leader of any kind or any revolutionary movement or any ideology and we say this is what's going to deliver us from the bad guys then we've forgotten the gospel and we better be careful it doesn't matter what side you're on because both do it and so we ought not be smug right now thinking of the other side we ought examine our own hearts don't immediately politicize this because then you lose the comfort. But at the same time, and if you kind of tend towards a 3rd wayism of any stripe, this is the challenge that you might face. You can't dismissively spiritualize the promise of deliverance from enemies. What I mean by that is you can't be like, look, Zechariah is really just talking about salvation and, and deliverance from sin and from Satan and from death. Those are the enemies he's really talking about. Okay, now apply that to our brothers and sisters who are worshiping God right now in secret because their government oppresses them and they lost a friend or loved one this week because they were killed for being a Christian. Tell them that these promises have nothing to do with deliverance from that kind of oppression. That makes no sense. It's not true. And so we can't dismissively spiritualize them and say, well, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that means you know, there's no actual physical deliverance coming. No, there is, but again, it's coming in Jesus when he returns. So there's a tension there. You know, we can't immediately politicize it and, and, and put these promises into our, uh, the politics of this age, but at the same time, we can't overly spiritualize it and dismiss the need for deliverance from very bad actors whose sin is against God and his people, causing much havoc in this world. And so the key for understanding this And to tap into them the joy Zechariah feels as he realizes God's promise to deliver his people from their enemies and show them mercy, the way we tap into that is by remembering the already but not yet dynamic of Jesus' two Advent's. The already but not yet. What we mean when we say that is Jesus already came with his first Advent, that's what we're remembering. As we explore Luke's gospel, he came, he was born, he died, he rose again, and that has delivered you from all of your sin, past, present, and future. That means that when you receive him by faith, you are brought out of Satan's kingdom of darkness and you are brought into God's kingdom of light. That is real, and it's the truest thing about you. It's already happened. What has not yet happened is Christ's return, his second advent, when he will come back and every knee will bow when God's people will bow in worship and adoration and joy and when his enemies will bow in submission because he is more powerful than they are and they will finally have to face that fact face to face. And so what that means when we we think about that tension, we're already in God's kingdom, and yet that kingdom has not yet come to, to finally squash every trace of sin and darkness in this world, is it means that we realize that we can dwell in that tension because our king has come. Because in Christ, who is the light, if he is with us, then no matter how much religious liberty we have or do not have, no matter how much persecution we face or do not face, our king is with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And so as we dwell in that tension, we can serve without fear because the things that matter most cannot and therefore will not change. You are in God's kingdom. You are known by him. You are loved by him. He has given you mercy And so as Zephaniah 3.15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. That's the kind of promise that Zechariah is meditating on here. He is delighting in the fact that the king was coming and for us he has come and he will come again. And in the meantime, his spirit fills us and guides us as the gospel of God's covenant mercy goes forth in this world. And that then leads to the second thing that Zechariah meditates on in his prophecy. Picking up in verses 76 and 77, here he describes John the Baptist's ministry of preparation as the one that was sent to prepare the way for God's mercy to arrive in Jesus. And it's very interesting that uh, Zechariah gives two verses in uh, in his prophecy to his son, and it comes after he's meditated on God's covenants coming true in Jesus. Remember that with Elizabeth, uh, she was quite content to be in second place, for the, the, uh, her Lord to be in Mary's womb, not her own. And she was humble. Zechariah is humble in the same way. He doesn't make this song all about his own son. He's not, you know, uh, tooting the horn of John. He's very humble. He recognizes John's place in God's purposes. And I think Elizabeth and Zechariah's example of humility is what shapes John then, as he says in John's gospel, to say, I must decrease, he must increase. It's a great testimony, parents, to the role that just humble examples of character uh, can have in the life of your children as God uses that. I think this is a great example of family discipleship. Now, as Zechariah describes John's ministry here, again, he reflects on the fact that this child will be called the prophet of the Most High. The way John will prepare the way for Jesus Is not by raising an army, it's not by stockpiling weapons or sowing outrage or discord and strife against Rome or the Israelite elites. He will do this by serving as a prophet, the first prophet to come in about 400 years and the final prophet before the ultimate prophet, Jesus. And so as he comes, his ministry is all about proclaiming the knowledge of salvation to God's people. And that's key. He's speaking to God's people. He's reminding them of what they need most, which is God's mercy. Because John knew that earthly deliverance that so many of the Israelites longed for would have been of absolutely no value to them if they were not first delivered from their sin. It doesn't matter if you're saved uh, from those that you deem your enemies if you're still an enemy of God. That's useless to you. And so John's ministry is all about proclaiming to God's people The the coming forgiveness in Jesus, he calls them to repent, to return to their God by faith, to get ready, to remember their sense of need for their sins to be forgiven. So verse 80, if you jump all the way ahead, John will grow will become strong in spirit and he will be in the wilderness until the day comes for him to appear before Israel and to begin that work of preparing the way for Jesus. And then, looking back at the prophecy, Zechariah talks about what will happen when Jesus arrives. Verses 78 and 79. He describes here the arrival of God's mercy in Christ, and notice first straight away that first line in verse 78, how he describes God's mercy. It's God's tender mercy. The word used there for tender literally means bowels. It means the depths or the cores of God's being. Um, For us, we're like, the bowels of God, that seems so strange, but in, in the ancient mind, Your affections were not so much in your heart the way we talk about it. They were in your bowels, in the core of your being. And so this is anthropomorphic language. God doesn't literally have a a body with bowels. But what Zechariah is saying metaphorically is that God's mercy is at the core of who he is. It is the core of his affections towards his people. He delights in showing mercy to his people. It's not a commodity that he just doles out unfeelingly, impersonally, or reluctantly, but he delights in showing us mercy. He delights in forgiving our sins in Jesus. And so that's why then Zechariah describes so vividly Jesus as the sunrise who visits us from on high. He's pulling from some Old Testament imagery here, and he's reminding us that apart from Christ, we all, no matter how swell our lives may appear or feel to us, without Jesus, we're dwelling in the darkness of sin, in the shadow of death, And the deception of Satan. But the light came down at Christmas. And the darkness did not and shall not overcome it. As foretold in Isaiah 9, Jesus is the great light who shines upon those who dwelt in a deep darkness. He is a child born to be the king and who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There is no end to the increase of his power, his government, his peace He is the king who is with us. He is the king whose presence means we can serve our God in any and all circumstances without fear because his kingdom will not end. His love will endure. His mercy is new every morning. This is the truest thing about you if you're a Christian. This king is your king, and his kingdom is where you belong. And so as we reflect on this, what we see is, is that Zechariah's prophecy helps us dial our hearts and remember what we truly need. It turns our gaze from all the things we're afraid of in this world, and it turns us back to the advent promises of God's mercy in Christ. Listen to the way Pastor Philip Graham Rikens highlights the centrality of our need for God's mercy. He says this, like the people of Israel, we are usually wrong about what we really need we tend to look first at our outward circumstances. We want God to save us from things like a bad work situation, a financial setback, or a troubled marriage. And of course, God is able to handle these problems, and it is right for us to pray for his help. But the first thing he has to deal with is our sin. What we need more than anything else is to have a right relationship with God, and this can only come through the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness is the supreme expression of God's compassionate mercy for sinners. Nothing is more wonderful for a sinner than to receive mercy. So as we reflect on that, I wanna ask you this morning, do you believe that God delights in showing you mercy in Christ? And do you believe that God's mercy fulfills your deepest needs? You see, when you feel anxious and guilty, and ashamed as a Christian, when the gospel just seems to skim across the surface of your heart rather than truly setting you free in an experiential way, you should pause and examine what do you really believe about God and his mercy? Do you believe that he delights in showing you mercy, or are you perhaps afraid that like a cold and distant earthly father, God doesn't really want to be with you? He's maybe annoyed at you or impatient with you. Are you afraid that like a manipulative leader, he's tricking you and his mercy isn't isn't what he promises it to be? Are Are you afraid that maybe you're deceiving yourself, that you somehow haven't repented enough and that one day you'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are real fears that many of us carry throughout life and that some of us are carrying right now. So what happens though is that we don't do anything about that. Because we're too scared to bring those fears into the light. Maybe because we're embarrassed. Maybe because we're afraid we'll find out that God is wrong and we're right. Oh, wait a minute. You know, when you say it out loud, you start to realize, no, bring it to the light. The sunrise has dawned. God's mercy has come for you in Christ. So bring those fears into the light. Don't be ashamed. You you often need someone else to do that with. And so if I or any of the elders or the deacons or the staff can be that person for you or grab someone from your small group, don't be afraid to say, this is how I've been afraid. This is what I've forgotten about God. I, I need to say this out loud and I need someone to pray with me so I can be reassured of his mercy and meditate on scripture. There's nothing more God can say than to you what he has already said. And yet what he's already said is worth hearing a million times over. Exodus 34, six through seven, God's character. He delights in showing you mercy. Matthew 11:28 28 through 30. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He delights in showing you mercy. This prophecy, reflect on these. Steep in them this Advent and cultivate your faith in the God who delights in showing you mercy in Christ, that you might believe that. But maybe, though, you feel as though what you really need this Christmas is something other than God's mercy. You have other things barreling down upon you, just to get in a stable place. I need my family to stop being dramatic. I need work to stop consuming all of my time and attention. I need some uh, boosts and good vibes for my mental health. I need some more money because it's economy. Who knows? You know, those are real needs. But you have to recognize what's going on there because those needs, especially when they're expressed with such passion and vibrancy, they're probably tied to what you answered that first question, what are you afraid of? Often things we think are our greatest needs or whatever it is we think will settle our deepest fears. And so that's why Riken's quote be a really good help to you to examine your heart and check yourself against God's word and say, "Mm, are my needs and my sense of my needs really what they are according to God? Am I being dismissive of my need for God's mercy, for forgiveness of my sins? Because if you are, watch out. Because that might indicate you don't understand the gravity of your sin. And if you don't understand the gravity of your sin and your need for forgiveness, you don't understand the grandeur and the beauty and the glory of God's grace to you. And that puts you in a perilous position. Because when the gospel is not most important to you, when God is not central in your life, you are very easily manipulated by people who will come along and say the right things to push the buttons of your fears. They'll get you to spend money you don't want to spend. And that's you know, most innocent. They'll get you to get angry, to break relationships, to give your heart and your passion away for a cause that they say is for your interest, but is really for theirs. And you will gain the world, perhaps but also lose your soul. So don't be manipulated. It also makes us prone to wander from God's truth when we forget our need for his mercy because we think that his mercy is some abstract commodity, some spiritual thing that's always sitting there on the shelf and you know, we just need to get this other stuff figured out and then we'll get around to God's mercy. But you have to recognize God's mercy and your need for that is the need beneath all the other needs. If you don't have sure footing on God's mercy and love for you in Christ, then how are you going to face the things you're afraid of? without getting completely knocked over by them. So take the time as you meditate on this question to see where God's mercy connects to your life in the places you need it most, to see where he has had tender mercy, that is compassion on you, a wayward sinner. And he's brought you home and called you his own. That will change you like it changed Zechariah. That will equip you to face the things in your family, in your marriage, at work, in this economy, or whatever else you might be afraid of. Because as you receive and rest upon the mercy of our God, you are then at the point where you can recognize you can serve God today with all the things you're facing without fear for all your days. Amen?